Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's budget day. We have all the headlines, top lines and landmines coming up in this special edition of the New Statesman podcast. Hello and welcome to our special budget day, extra special emergency podcast. We are joined by a great guest. We're joined by Harrod Davis, who was appointed as chairman of the Royal Bank of Scotland on the 1st of September 2015. He's formerly worked at the Bank of England, the CBI and the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and is the author of five books focused on the financial market. So hello, Howard. Hi. What were your initial impressions of the budget? Just as soon as as he sat down, what did you think uh, about what Philip Hammond had said? I thought it was a reasonable stab at treading through the minefield in which he found himself. I think there is a degree of fiscal relaxation, which is probably sensible given that growth is expected to be lower, but not sufficient fiscal relaxation to frighten the horses in financial markets, which are nervous at the moment, particularly given the imminence of some kind of hard Brexit. So I think overall, I would say that the balance looks reasonable to me. I would say, however, it's an iron rule of budgets that any budget that looks good at first sight is turns out to be a disaster later. <laughs> the wheels fall off by about 6pm. Um, just to go back to those growth figures, because that was a moment when I was following along on Twitter, when there was a kind of a sharp collective intake of breath. So the OBR, which is an independent agency, has forecast down all growth expectations. I think for the whole forecast period, it's now all of it is below 2%, which is unprecedented. And Philip Hammond very much strongly linked that to poor productivity, which is a long-term problem in Britain. What what did you make of those figures? This is the ghost of George Osborne stalking the corridors of Westminster still because he put in place the OBR. Of course, during his time, generally it wasn't particularly disruptive because we were in the middle of a big crisis and Edward could see that and therefore the OBR's forecast didn't cause him a big issue. They have for 16 consecutive budgets or autumn statements maintained the previous view about productivity in the UK economy and have finally decided that that is no longer plausible. So it's a rather sudden change. And I think that's a bit tough on Philip Hammond because you would have normally expected these forecasts to be kind of shaded down over a period, but they've done a a major reforecasting. So that created quite a significant issue for him. It does look to me as if we have moved to a lower productivity trajectory. It's hard 
to produce a good explanation as to why that is the case. There may be some issues about delayed investment, uh, uh, poor education and training record, but none of them really explain a change of trend quite in the way we have. However, if that's the way it is, we have to get used to it. And we can't keep on assuming that higher productivity is going to dig us out of a growth hole. So I think at least we have a prudent baseline on which to do the budget arithmetic. Well, I think the interesting thing, partly in terms of one of your sort of old employees, is then I think the unnoticed thing in the last Monetary Policy Committee report was their argument for having a hike, which was effectively the low, lower productivity, lower hike. growth, yeah. um, is the norm post-Brexit. And then actually what might look to us as a, a weak economy is actually probably as good as it gets. The irony, of course, is I am at the moment midway through Fallout, which I am reviewing for a later issue of the NS. I'd like to clarify that's Tim Shipman's book about the Brexit campaign, not the video, yes. the excellent <laughs> video game Fallout, which is what confused me when you said this this morning. And it reminded me of, of something and I had known before, but I had forgotten, which was that Philip Hammond was, one of the things he was derided for by Nick Hat Timothy was his belief that Brexit would reduce growth in 2017 yeah. to 1%. And Babar, what has happened is growth is now forecast to be a little bit over 1%. So I think, in an odd way, I think it feels to me the big story of this budget, despite him kind of doing the obligatory conservative kneel before the Brexit god kind of thing, is that Brexit has hurt our long-term growth. Well, that's going to be a big, big old row, isn't it? Because I thought it was very notable how the, the pretty much, I think, the first announcement that Philip Hammond made was the three billion pounds for Brexit contingency planning, which was an, an obvious kind of sop to people who said that he's you know, not on board with it, he's not making the preparations necessary. I don't know how you felt about his attitude towards Brexit. I mean, apart from that, he tried very much not yeah. to mention it after some front-loading some sort of sunlit uplands at the, at the top. Well, I think that... We've um, already talked about the problems created by Osborne's creation of the OBR, but there is an advantage, which is that Hammond himself does not have to hang his hat on any particular revised forecast about the impact of Brexit. He just says, that's what they think the economy is going to go. Uh, you know, He doesn't even need to say why they think that. Part of that is, I think, a post-Brexit effect, lower exposure to free trade and therefore on the whole uh, a lower growth rate. Most economists would argue that's probably true. But he doesn't need to get into that. He just needs to take it as his baseline and work from there. I think probably it makes sense for him to do a budget without too much reference to Brexit, apart from this initial three billion. I don't know what that's going to be spent on, by the way, but maybe tarmac in Kent in order to put all the lorries, that possible. But more seriously, I suppose that each department does have some issues that they probably need to spend money on. But I think it's probably sensible for him to avoid Brexit because Brexit is important, in my view, but it isn't everything. You know, Brexit, before Brexit, people were finding it difficult to buy new houses and they are finding it difficult after Brexit. Uh, so I think it makes sense for him to steer clear of that. Well, let's talk a bit about the house building because that was saved to the end to be, you know, we always talk about the idea of a Brexit rabbit. And I think it went down extremely well in the chamber. I mean, Stephen, you were there. That was the moment I think the Tory MPs really that was the, that got the biggest reception as far as I can that see. That was, I think, the only, well, I would say the only real cheer of the, the the speech was for the was from the stamp duty cut. But my feeling about it is, I, I don't know whether or not it will fall apart. It reminded me a lot of, say, something like the raising of the threshold for income to, for when you pay income tax, in the sense that actually that has is because of the way that the 
boundaries then move on is actually much better the higher up the income scale that you go. So it's it's something that it looks very appealing to the particular demographic that it's targeted at, but actually it has nice effects for other people too. And that's kind of how I felt about this announcement was that it looks like a giveaway to millennials, but actually it's a way of stabilising the housing market if you worry that their house prices are beginning to slide now, which would then make a lot of people worry and feel a bit poorer. I don't know how you feel about that, Howard. Yeah, I'm, uh, I've been avoiding taking calls from my two sons in their 30s because they both have bought flats in the last three years and they're going to be absolutely furious about this, I can tell you, because it's quite a big discontinuity. I think fundamentally it's a recognition that the government went a bit too far under the previous administration in raising stamp duty and extracting more money from the housing market on stamp duty and on, on, on transfers of property um, rather than doing it through increasing property taxes, through increasing council tax, which in many ways would be a more logical thing to do. So they've created another rather odd discontinuity here. It is going to be a big giveaway. It was a big cheer, as you say, because he avoided, I mean, it's always interesting in a budget to note the dogs that did not bark. And the dog that didn't bark here was a student. We didn't do anything more on student loans, which many people thought he, he might do. So they've got cheaper rail cards, the graduates, but that's about all. Uh, So I think that it is a recognition that they went too far on it. As for what the consequence of the housing market will be, I mean, it's a fairly sizable reduction. I think it's an average of about £1,600 for every first-time buyer. And it will have an impact in London too because of this neat idea of it going up to houses worth up to 500000 and getting the 300000 So it will have an impact on more expensive areas too. You know, I think probably it does make sense to do something because I do think that they they were in danger of gumming up the housing market by very large uh, taxes on transfers. And that was actually not just preventing people from getting in, but preventing people from moving around. And as important as getting your first flat is when you have a child or two being able to move. And that was a big tax for most people when you move to a small house or a three bedroom flat. So I think it probably does make uh, some sense in the context of the housing market as a whole. Yeah. Were you surprised, Stephen, about there wasn't anything on demand? I mean, to make John Ellidge, who runs our sister website, City Metric, very happy, someone at one point did actually shout out in the comments, build more homes. And there wasn't as much... There was some talk about uh, Oliver Letwin is going to run a review, and which I think was basically to look at things like land banking. But were you surprised there wasn't any action on supply? Um I wasn't really, because a really good way to predict what's going to be in a budget is, is who is making a lot of noise before it. Santi Javid would not have given a big speech to them, was effectively a prolonged subtweet of Philip Hammond, in which he talked about how it's nonsense mm. to suggest that the reason why millennials can't get on the housing ladder is they eat too many avocados, if he was happy with what he thought he was going to get in the budget. And this fell far short of the $50 billion he wanted, although there was there's a figure similar to it, $44 billion, Sajid Javid wanted fifty billion on capital expenditure on new house building. This is forty-four billion it's on loans, a variety isn't it? of pack- well, on building loans and a whole variety of packages. I-, I-, I want to talk briefly about the stamp duty stuff as well because I have have got the relevant page of the OBR's report. Yeah, they have modelled it, and it is true that there are many ways in which stamp duty is not a very desirable tax because it it, it it's prevents lumpy, movement right? yeah. and it yeah it deters a lot of behaviour than you would want to encourage in in any property market. 
the flip side of that though is it does also hold prices at certain thresholds mm. so yeah one of the things that Osborne's changes did is they kind of killed the weird existence of the 249k flat yeah. because of the change to make it slightly more uh, progressive in terms of how it was paid this will similarly inflate prices at the 250 to 300k trend and it's very easy to forget because we are here in London that is actually the overwhelming bulk of where the action is if you are a first-time buyer across the country and they actually estimate that first-time buyers will be fairly big losers from this change. So can I get this right? If, if you're saying that if you're a house, someone selling a house and you, you'd be thinking about putting it on the market about 250k, you think, well, I might let that creep up a little bit because it will be offset by people who will have a bit more money to spend because they'll get a stamp duty, they'll get stamp duty relief. Yes. So you feel like depressing yourself, listeners, by walking past a, an estate agent. So you will, you will notice that actually the, they do tend to cluster around effectively where the stamp duty bans used to be. That was even more clear before the 2014 changes. Although, you know, to say something positive about George Osborne, for, which is rare for me on this podcast or indeed anywhere, he did successfully partially start to smother the buy-to-let market. But the interesting thing, of course, is whether or not, if there are more interest rate hikes to come, which the MPC has signalled that there are, whether or not that also spurs exits from that market. The weird thing about the whole buy-to-let industry is a great. there's been a great deal of rent-seeking, but very few of the people who have been rent-seekers have extracted a great deal of rent themselves, right? There is there are weirdly a lot of fairly precarious buy-to-let landlords. So you mean people who put it into their own mm, mortgage, Yeah, they put it into their own mortgage. Or, so the, the, one of the difficulties is you need a way for those people to exit the sector, but you need them to do it in a way which doesn't create a disorderly... One thing I thought was a good policy, and who knows if I will be debunked by this by, the, by tea time, was the 100% council tax premium on empty properties, which a lot of people went, well, ho-ho, you know, actually anyone who can afford to keep a property empty, that's not going to make any difference to them, which seems to me the kind of perfect kind of policy, really, because then they'll just pay some money. It reminded me a little bit of George Osborne's, uh, I think it was a capital gains on foreign investors. And basically, if you've got a group of people who've got loads and loads of money and you, you don't really want them to act in a particular way, then you, you win either way. Howard, was there anything else that you immediately thought, oh, that's, yeah, that's that good, one, I like that? Um, is, yeah, will pro- I mean, is, is pretty justifiable, I think. There are not that many. I mean, the number of second homes is actually falling at the moment, and so it probably isn't going to raise a vast amount of money, but it will raise some. I think that's quite good. I mean, I think we should re- recognise the rise in the national living wage because that has gone up by over 4%. So once again, you know, the bottom 20% of the income distribution are going to do better, will have a small real terms increase after uh, inflation. And, you know, I think one, one has to say that's, uh, that's good. And I think they've carried on with that policy. What is interesting, again, on the dogs that didn't bark thing is that there isn't really that much here for the dreaded squeeze middle or the just about managing uh, we used to hear quite a lot about but of course they're very expensive to help because a lot of them I, I thought that was really interesting when you looked at the distributional impact that actually it was quite a progressive government it is. in terms of the yeah the, the lowest getting more and the, and the highest losing more but I, again the other people I thought the dogs that didn't bark was pensioners which is a really in- I don't think I've actually heard the p word mentioned at all no. and now obviously the, the Tories went into this election promising an end to the triple lock which got ditched very quickly after as part of their deal with the DUP, but there weren't any sweeties for for pensioners or really particularly older people generally, as far as I could see. Well, I think probably just about the news that 
pensioners have actually been doing relatively well because they've had increases, they've had the triple lock, etc., has sort of got through into political consciousness. You won't find many MPs saying pensioners are all terribly well off, so nothing should be done. But on the other hand, the level of pressure for something to be done for pensioners is not that great. And after all, they got Brexit, which was what they voted for. <laughs> well, that's true. That's a pretty big sweetie, if that's what you want. <laughs> Stephen, was there anything in there that you thought, well, this is a really good idea? This is not something I would have thought. I did like the minimum wage increase. Actually, kind of that's an interesting year. It's always useful to mark the things you've got wrong. I was fairly sceptical that uh, Osborne's abandoning of the tripartite model of setting that wage. I thought that would probably create more job losses and disruption at the lower end of the labour market than it has. It has actually been a success. It is the biggest percentage increase in terms of the take-home pay of the lowest. When uh, does it become a problem, for example, for councils paying care workers? So the bad news is is it is already incredibly acute for councils paying uh, care workers. And the interesting thing that Philip Hammond did not do in this budget, so there was a court case recently where care home workers who live in with someone with acute care are now have to be paid to sleep. Effectively, there were some people who, if you were there overnight and you had the idea that you could be woken up for some reason or another because of the person you were you were looking after might need your care, you were paid a third of the minimum wage for the hours you were sleeping. The court has ruled, I think, uh, completely correctly that seeing as you've been taken out of your home you can theoretically be woken at any at any hour and you're having a disrupted sleeping pattern of course you are you are working and this idea for the hour you're awake you should only be paid a third of the minimum wage is is, is fictional however that is a massive increase yeah. in the uh, costs for <coughs> local authorities and the charities they mostly pay to do this work for them that is also going to that as well as that increased cost you've got the increased cost of the minimum wage increase the government basically keeps going, okay, we're just going to, we're aware we've got this problem, uh, so we'll just uh, ignore it for now. That is that is a big problem. But actually, increasing the minimum wage, if an increase in the minimum wage puts pressure on government spending, that's the result of government spending decisions. The risk with a minimum wage hike where you abandon the low pay commission and its model of getting economists, trade unionists and businesses to set a rate isn't you do it at a level than private companies go to the wall right so actually the the area of the economy to watch out for with the wage increase was catering where you have very low very low margins you know, say a restaurant which employs three people whether or not a lot of those went to the wall they didn't actually that in some ways has been which is i guess a repetition of a lesson from the original minimum wage which was you know blood-curdling predictions from william Hague at the time that this was going to be t- terrifying and horrifying and, and those didn't really come to pass Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Howard, on the other side, is there anything that you heard and you kind of winced a bit or thought, well, that's an odd decision or, you know, that could cause them problems? Well, you know, in environmental terms, I find the continued freeze on fuel duty to be an odd thing. Of course, I understand the politics of it, as we all do. The white van man 
is uh, is very influential. But nonetheless, you know, it doesn't seem to me to make much sense to continue to freeze fuel duty. I think we need to accept that we should be making fossil fuels more expensive. And um, once again, we haven't done. I thought the figures involved, um, off the top of my head, I think they said something like £46 billion saved by people since 2010. <laughs> As a kind of hooray, but then you also thought, well, that's, I mean, in terms of deficit reduction, that would be a, I mean, that is a headline figure. There's a hell of a lot of money. So it's, 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 it's a very costly measure, certainly, isn't it? it to, is. to keep, to keep cancelling that. Booze duty has also been frozen, except for Philip Hammond has declared war on strong cider. That's the one that he's yes, really. White cider. White sure, cider. Yeah. Um, Not something I drink. No, no, well, not good because it would be costing you a lot more. The 26 to 30 rail card seems to have gone down quite badly once people realised it was only for off-peak fares, right? So this is the problem. It's, it's not actually for commuting. I just don't know. I mean, I mean, I saw Gloria de Piero tweeting, well, actually, lots of people in my constituency get the bus, which is a consistent theme whenever we talk about rail and things like that, about actually the number of people who, who don't use rail. And actually, that's a, that tends to be more of a middle class and, and higher income Well, thing. I'm about to get my Christian Walmart on, right? I, yeah, comple- I completely agree. A, this idea that, oh, so we've decided pollution is fine if you are doing the pollution for your business needs. You know, it's ridiculous that white van man is going to be exempt from it. And... I mean, I don't understand why Hammond decided to walk into the punch of making comments about driverless cars again. It's like, mate, your government is the driverless car. Don't, you know, don't, <laughs> don't, don't, don't do this to yourself. But but his other we, jokes weren't but, too bad, but though, Stephen. Being, are you going to forgive him at least for a couple of these? Driven, games? if you'll forgive the better, the unintentional. Ones, we are being driven to this future of driverless cars, and we ought to be aiming for a carless future. We ought to be making it much cheaper and more pleasant to use public transport, particularly buses, because in large parts of the country that is a more effective form of transport because unfortunately successive governments have built around the car so you can't just seamlessly move to railways. And in the long term, railways and other systems of public transit. And it also is a lot of money that has been foregone since 2010. I think that is probably the biggest missed opportunity. The weird thing is, is... I can't spot anything that is going to be a problem for the government in terms of passing this. The stamp duty stuff, which I think is a mistake, doesn't matter to the DUP because uh, there are very few homes in Northern Ireland which are going to get anywhere close. I mean, at the point you're paying stamp duty, almost you you live in a palace. You're saying so, your homes in Northern Ireland are already pretty much exempt so, from yeah, stamp so, duty. So, mo- so that's, that doesn't create political budget. problems in the same way, particularly at the 5,000 end where they think it's going to create, 500,000 where they think it's going to create some some bunching issues. Also, the DUP's electorate is a lot poorer than the Conservative one. So it, it again, it's just not an electoral issue in the same way. And the Conservative MPs like it. I So I can't really see anything in this budget that is going to become a running sore. Can I, I float my terrifying thesis, which yeah. is that it does feel like quite a giveaway budget. And do you know when giveaway budgets traditionally happen? Four elections. I mean, it's only 23 billion, right? Mm. It's not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, normally this should have been a tax-raising budget. If we hadn't voted for Brexit and the economy was still going at two or something percent, then this would have been the time to have made a big change. So it is a very different budget from the one that we would have got had Osborne still been there. Um, but it, let's not overstate the giveaway. I mean, it's about in the maximum year, which is I think the year after next, it's about 0.4% of GDP as an increase. Well, you know, it's not nothing, but it's not massive. Okay, well, you've reassured me that we might not have an election next year, which is really all I wanted to hear at this point. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us, Howard Davies.
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host, Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our theme music is by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. You can follow us on Twitter at NS underscore podcasts. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.